Aloha. Welcome to this podcast for the 41st Annual Hawaii International Film Festival presented by Halekulani. My name is Lee Ngo, and I am the program associate of the festival. My guest is Dennis Goulet, the filmmaker behind Night Raiders. We would like to extend our thanks to HGH and Niatero and Hawaii Airlines for sponsoring this program and our Film for Thought programming section. Dennis, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Uh, just want to say, um, and I say this sincerely, Truly enjoyed your film, um, thought it was riveting and uh, certainly poignant as well. And uh, I, while I was listening to your Q&A, I was blown away by the fact that this has been a long time coming for you, especially uh, eight years of wanting to have this project come together. So what were the things that needed to happen for you in order for your vision to be finally realized? Well, so I started writing it in 2013, and around that time, I just made my first genre film. It was a short film, and prior to that, I had only made dramas, and so that Fourier was really interesting for me. Um, and also around that time, there was um, a protest movement that was um, kind of spreading across Canada called Idle No More, and it was started by four women on the prairies, and it ended up being one of the largest uprisings um, that I was seeing in my life and it was a protest against a bill that was going to remove protections for Canadian lakes and rivers like the water systems basically right. um, and uh, what it consisted of is people standing up in malls um, at the height of the Christmas shopping season doing round dances and so it was like an uh, it was like a, a presence in spaces that are mm. like meant to like you know pray to the gods of capitalism mm. um and it was so beautiful to see that and the mall that i had hung out in as a teenager um was a site for one of those and i just felt that i was like glued to the feeds and at that point i it sort of changed my storytelling and i knew i really wanted to tell a story about indigenous power mm -hmm. um and that i wanted to do it in a genre container Right. Um, and so around that time, there wasn't a, a lot of indigenous genre films. I started writing the script. Writing for me took a long time because it was my first long form writing experience. So mm -hmm. it's like I really didn't have faith that I knew what I was doing. Sure, <laughs> um, so sure. sometimes it would just take a while or I would do breaks. And I was also programming for the Toronto International Film Festival. Mm -hmm. So that was a really busy on season. So I would do TIFF and then take a break and turn my attention back to Night Raiders. Mm -hmm. But I think also at that time, there just wasn't really any examples in the marketplace for the existence of indigenous genre films, at least at the feature level. And there was another filmmaker named Jeff Barnaby who was trying to get his own genre film made called mm. Blood Quantum, which was a zombie yes. movie. Yes. So that got made the year before yeah. Night Raiders. That, um, that film uh, uh, was part of the HIF 39 lineup yeah. as well. And I was and, uh, working for that. Super so. cool, Absolutely. badass. You know, Jeff had been making those kind of films for years right. and this was his dream and um and it finally came together but um back when i was pitching i don't think people really understood you know what this was and mm -hmm. there was we we pitched some broadcaster in canada and they said wow it's a really riveting story but i don't know if the allegory to residential schools or like the policies against indigenous people are really relevant because mm. priests are no longer beating up kids and so we as a country have moved on from that and that was like a note i was getting that was from a major broadcaster and it was really disheartening because right. i just felt like this actually is someone's politics coming into the assessment of my project right. and it also wasn't true 
that I got those notes in June of 2015, which was the exact month that the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in Canada, which mm -hmm. was a body set up to look at residential schools, um, was releasing their findings. So the things that I was exploring in the film, which is the impact of um, harmful Canadian policies on Indigenous life, like it, it was so still relevant. And um, sure. anyway, it just felt like overall it was a challenge. And mm -hmm. then uh, I feel like when Get Out came out into the world, like mm -hmm. Jordan Peele's movie, and it was obviously talking about whiteness um, through a genre lens. It just sort of opened up the world for everyone that wanted to work in that way. And even though my genre is very different, it just created an example. And I think the market is so cynical about what can be popular or what will be embraced that it's like the minute you have an example to kind of glob onto it, um, it's it makes a difference. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there's uh, so many things I, I want to follow up on with what you just said. The first is, uh, I mean, to reflect the disheartening feeling of people in policy positions or in powerful positions who take the perspective of uh, turning their backs or a willful ignorance towards the plight of indigenous peoples and oppressed peoples. And I, I don't know where this mentality comes from, uh, largely because it might, I mean, my best guess when there are stories that I know need to be told that come from that place from oppression, uh, there's a discomfort from people to really reckon like the reality of their society. Like they want things to look like, oh, we are progressive. Things are getting better. We're doing all we can. And we're all active participants. Um, and I think your story uh, forces a lot of people to confront that reality even um, with its use of genre, or I would say especially. Um, yeah, I, I remember your sighting of Get Out last night, and I find it interesting, uh, you know, comparing your film to Blood Quantum's also use of a genre that I think catches a lot of attention. Um, was it your intention to be a, you know, futuristic sci-fi film, um, or was that an apparatus to get the subversive messages that you were uh, trying to convey what what was was it like a carpet horse kind of thing or yeah I think for me um, when I made my genre short wakening it just opened up so many creative possibilities that I was really excited about that mm -hmm. as the way to talk about something that I cared about um, for me like what drives me is always what I'm saying you know or like the things I want to talk about or the conversations that I want to prompt mm -hmm. um, and then to me the container is secondary but um, you know, because you can do that in all kinds of ways. But just, I was excited by the fact that we hadn't seen it much before, and that also that it was exciting for me as a filmmaker to work in that space. Um, mm -hmm. You know, when something's hyper fictional, there's it gives you also a layer of protection. I think, um, right, right. as a storyteller, to kind of just do what you want because mm -hmm. it's a completely fictional world. Uh, and then the creation and the world building is also just super fun so um yeah like i grew up on genre films i grew up in a small town in northern saskatchewan in the midwest of canada and it's like i didn't really have access to art house cinema until i got older and into high school and moved to a bigger city um so like i grew up on all the big genre stuff like et and star wars mm -hmm. and all of that and mm -hmm. it's like you know like that was my childhood and right. then i remember seeing the matrix and just thinking like it was amazing and i think what blew me away, like obviously it was in the slick action, like ex like action-packed and super exciting story. Right. But to me, I saw it, and as an indigenous person, 
I remember the way I felt in the theater, which was that there was a power in the voice that it was coming from and that it had a subversive message. And I was like, this was made by people who are like, you know, have an understanding about something like they are pointing their finger at the man and they get it. And it was so exciting to me to see all of that disguised in this like incredibly exciting and awesome story. Um, And then I got involved in film festival programming and then like, you know, watched cinema from all around the world and then kind of was like on a social realist kick for a while. Um, But I think in a way, like all of those influences come together because dystopian futures, it's like you can very much work in social realist aesthetics, um, but then also, you know, marry that with elements that are fantastical. And to me, that's kind of the space that I work in. Um, That's actually a perfect segue into the next question that I had for you. Uh, And what is foreboding about Night Raiders? Um, And I love the comparisons to one of my favorite films is uh, Alfonso Cuaron's Children of Men Mm. in that, you know, that film doesn't, it's actually, that film takes place starting from now, eight years from now. Yeah. Right. Children of Men takes place eight years from now. And, I don't want to uh, speculate as to what that could mean. Um, and this film takes place, your film, Night Raiders, takes place 22 years from now. And I find that um, this is, I, I mean, forgive me if this is incorrect, but I found that to be a deliberate way to not distantiate it too much from as a inaccessible, like colorful, too, a beyond the imaginary sci-fi film. Like this is actually going to be, um, you know, intentionally an, an extension of a reality that we live in now. Um, so, yeah. I'm, but you've already tapped into it, and I want to push it further. This question of you've granted a lot of creative freedom for yourself by applying the genre and and and, and fictionalizing a lot of what's a, a reality, a truth for you. Um, where is that distinction, perhaps in technique or perhaps in um, what you did with this film, between okay, this is where um, I deliberately wanted to make it hyper fantastical, and this is where I needed to tell something that's actually happening. Yeah, I mean, I just think, um, I don't know if I thought so clearly about those lines. Mm -hmm. I more just thought about the fact that I like working in a grounded space. So something where the majority of it feels like realism. And so, yes, definitely the choice to go only 22 years into the future was a choice to kind of stay very tethered to right now in a way so that it's really just one step beyond Mm -hmm. and so the fantastical elements themselves are only one step beyond and Mm -hmm. children of men is an absolute touchstone for the film like it's like there's so many i love that movie um it's so incredible and it was such an inspiration Mm -hmm. um but yeah i think you know just reaching a little beyond um, allows us to stay grounded, but then the fantastical elements are actually, like I don't even know if you could really call it sci-fi because everything in the film exists in our world. Yes, Like drones and, uh, I mean the drones are really the main, I guess like presence and Mm. they're employed in a different way. Like they obviously exist in that world differently than they exist in ours, but the technology is all there. And in this world they're also, AI and so they're they have their own agency mm-hmm. um, uh, which is different obviously than the drones today mm-hmm. and then there's also kind of like a a, a, st- a Cree story in the film that is about you know that encompasses some of the characters without giving away any spoilers mm-hmm. and and at the end of the film there's something fantastical that happens but to me that that event 
was just about um, an extension of communication right. as opposed to something magical, for example. Like right. I think people could look at that and go, oh, well, that's a magical realist moment. But to me, it was, um, it was not magical. It was, uh, it was communication. Mm -hmm. and, um, mm -hmm. and also it came from Cree philosophical thought about how animate and inanimate breaks down in the language. Right. Um, and so, uh, yeah, like some of that, like for example, in the Cree language, rocks are considered animate. So if rocks are alive, then machines could be considered alive. And I think it just, as a worldview, it was interesting to explore that as different than, you know, um, that a machine is definitely not alive. And also that if it ever becomes sentient, the first thing it's gonna do is annihilate us because mm -hmm. we colonized the machines. Um, but to me, that comes from a colonized mindset. I mean, if you, don't think of the machines as an inherent threat. Like, what what possibilities does that open up? Right, right. I, oh, that's a really sophisticated way to look at it. And you know, because of your previous mention of the Matrix, there's those kinds of anxieties and concerns as well. And for my own watch of the film, and I'm going to also try to not spoil it as well. Um, I kept thinking about like how different kinds of knowledges and notions of modernity, um, et cetera, are playing out in this contentious space. And uh, one thing that's incredibly helpful, I mean, the culture of the Cree, I mean, we're talking tens of thousands of years potentially, uh, that's playing out against things that have existed really in the last hundred, if that, and um, and how they're being applied becomes the deciding factor into how like one's own morality is interpreting what's happening here. Um, I thought uh, there was just as much, if not more, attention paid to, um, and forgive me, I'm an anthropologist by training, so yeah. I think a lot about uh, the intricacies and the values that are uh, being represented in films like yours, especially from a cultural level, that you've te you, it took so much time to for people to pay attention to that as uh, just as if not more significant and important than um, the apparatuses of technology and war that are being used. Um, so forgive my next question, um, and it's related to this, but um, it's a little bit loaded. Uh, you know, um, this film, to me, uh, I couldn't help but feel anxious, <laughs> and I think that's by design, um, but anxious about uh, a lot of, you know, this process of state building and nationalism um, and colonization that uh, happens throughout. and. You know, you see everything from child soldiers to um, like lands that are sacred that are turned into commodities. Uh, and, um, you know, I've already mentioned that even not just the drones, but people from these communities, these indigenous communities are weaponized against themselves. And, um, you know, and also, I mean, you are of a Canadian citizenship. I'm American. We'll see how this plays out. Um, that there is even that tension that's still is constantly discussed between America and Canada or the US and Canada. Um, how do you see this film? I mean, this is probably way too much, but we'll just maybe start on one of the many things I've just discussed, but like, um, how does this film wish to uh, present its thesis in terms of, is this a reflection? Is it a um, criticism? Um, and I'd say, lastly, sorry, loaded question. Um, for those who are optimists, like me to a tiny extent, um, where are the areas of hope when it comes to viewing films that are uh, dystopic as yours, um, in a sense. Yeah, I think, um, wow, there's so much in the question. I'm sorry, Where I should I have start? broken. Um, um, uh, I, I'll start at the end. I think I'm mostly concerned about, um, you know, there's a lot of darkness, but there is hope um, without spoiling anything. Uh, 
And I want to focus a lot more on that um, because um, I know your executive producer, producer Taika Waititi, has made it his own personal mission to advance stories like this one. And um, they have to come with some sort of uh, optimism, I think, or a sense of hope for the future, whether it's representation or real change. So I'd love to know where your thoughts are on that. Yeah, I mean, I, I, um, I have hope for the future. I don't think we can... I don't know how... Like, I think it's my responsibility as an indigenous person in the continuum of everything that's happened, um, you know, in the colonization of the Americas. It's like, you know, our ancestors survived all of that with incredible resilience and strength. Mm -hmm. um, and I have to pass down to younger generations, in my mind, hope because, you know, like, for example, we've got the highest rates of suicide our communities do in Canada, and it's often youth that are taking their own lives, and it's horrible, and it's because they don't believe they have a future. And so I feel like it is my, you know, it's my absolute responsibility to um, to declare that, that we have a future as Indigenous people, but also to give something to the youth to hope for, um, you know, in our communities, a lot of pressure is placed on youth. They're sort of told that they're the future and so much is on their shoulders and it's a lot of pressure. They've inherited um, intergenerational trauma um, mm -hmm. and and some, many things they did not ask for. And to me, they gave me so much hope. Like when I was watching the live feeds of the protest movement, um, at Idle No More or when I went to Standing Rock mm -hmm. to visit. I mean, the youth are so beautiful. They're so strong. They're so unafraid to be seen and heard. And it's inspiring to me. And I feel like it's my job to give them that back in a right. way. Um, because, you know, we have survived. So why wouldn't that continue in spite of it all? Um, mm -hmm. But it is, is it a criticism? Absolutely, it's a criticism. Um, it is, you know, also a part of my responsibility to talk about the impact of what something like the residential school system in Canada did to every aspect of Indigenous life and continues to do today. And, you know, it's interesting because I was also just thinking plainly about the rise of white supremacy. Like, I started writing this in 2013, and I was thinking, wow, the demographics of North America are changing. Yes you know, there's gonna be a white backlash. Mm -hmm. And in my imaginary world timeline, the white backlash came eight years later than it did in real life when Donald Trump was elected. Right, um, right. And so all of that was just thinking about the, chi the changing tides of the world. And then also, you know, I think it, this is talking about a civil war that happened in North America. So it encompasses the US into this discussion. Yes. And the jingoes are very much considered to be like a Trumpian fact action mm -hmm. that has taken over like the Emerson side of the world and then separated everybody else out. Right, um, right. But I also added a little Canadian part of um, the regime, which is you always present as polite and helpful, even though it's just as insidious, by the way. Yes, yes. Um, but Canada did this thing where it's like, oh, we're just trying to help you and we'll give your children a better future. And so the um, the regime in this movie is very like presents as very kind of helpful and like there's no arch villain in the movie that you can really put your finger on because also uh, 
you know, like colonization and oppression is very hard because it's so systemic. Mm -hmm. It's hard to pin it on one person, although right. Trump was a pretty easy target. <laughs> right. Um, and at the same time, uh, I'm glad that you just pointed that out uh, when it comes to it's in a way uh, it, it's nice to almost feel included, but kind of included in this problematic game that is state building with a big S. Right. Yeah. And I found that, uh, you know, I have <laughs> this is not trying to get my own personal rant, but, um, you know, it's it's difficult to articulate states without them uh, achieving power through some form of symbolic or actual violence or physical violence. And I see both of those things playing out. Um, and it is something that at least for people who watch this film, um, I think it's an important lesson to acknowledge when, you know, you the state is presenting itself with very magnanimous intentions, uh, but that's part of the propaganda machine, right? Yes. Um, paying attention to these things as well is, is good. Um, I also wanted to note, I loved what you said about uh, young people, because I'm not young anymore. I'd like to think Me I am, neither. but I've, I've become, um, I mean, cynical, I think, to an extent. It's hard not to, um, and I think that's where I am craving hope, but it is the most impressive thing. Um, spending time with young people who are so, not just uh, progressive, but they are vigilant about it. They're willing to stand by. They're, they're, they're talking about things that I could only say in a closeted way, you know, 10 or 20 years ago. Totally. Um, and in an ironic sense, like, you know, these films are about darker futures, but perhaps we should think about them as like these darker alternative realities that we must support the youth, support the next generation to avoid at all costs and i think that's um, what night raiders and films like it uh really try to advocate in my view um, yeah i mean i think dystopian fiction often you know exists as a warning and right. it's just like it is absolutely possible for us to go back there and it's up to all of us to determine that that doesn't happen mm -hmm. you know it's like i you know who saw the extremity and the large numbers of people that would get on side with Trump. Mm -hmm. And, uh, but it, but it happens, right? And I had also just like done tons of research into Nazi Germany as well. And right. how one of the most smart things in a way Hitler did was just start going after the youth and like totally brainwashing them. Because if you pull that youth away from their parents' generation, it just pulls out the power. Mm -hmm. um, you know, like uh, the minute, I mean, in Nazi Germany, obviously um, Hitler youth were turning on their own parents. Like that is like so chilling and awful and horrendous. And yet we know this happened and we know it's possible. And mm -hmm. uh, it's just so important for all of us to be vigilant if that's not where we want to see things go. Right. Absolutely. And, uh, and, you know, and I think that is really a wonderful place. Well, because that's also where the last of my questions are done. But um, I think that's a wonderful place to conclude. But first, I want to give you a last opportunity for you to announce any shameless plugs or shout outs. Next projects you're working on, people you want to thank, uh, you know, as a call it a thank you for dedicating your time to uh, speaking with me and also supporting the Hawaii International Film Festival. So the floor is yours. Thank you. I, it's been such an incredible joy to come here to Hawaii. And I've been hearing so much about this festival from my friends for so many years. So it's such an honor to come here, um, especially because international travel is still so very limited. I don't think anyone even thought it was possible until the last minute. So to be here and to share with the audiences, I think this is a beautiful community. And I was lucky enough to come here back in 2016, and I worked with some of the local indigenous filmmakers at the time, and I was just blown away 
by the community here. And so mm -hmm. to come here for, you know, my first U.S. screening is just like the best. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, that is uh, such an honor for, to hear from you. And um, as someone who's, uh, you know, been a huge fan of HIF since I've gotten first involved, uh, I can totally validate everything you're saying. Uh, Dennis Goulet, I want to thank you so much for being a part of this podcast. Um, you were the filmmaker behind Night Raiders. Um, if you haven't checked it out yet, please go check it out at the Hawaii International Film Festival or any other opportunity you might see it. Uh, we hope you and other people are enjoying the remainder of the festival. And this has been a podcast for the 41st Hawaii International Film Festival presented by Halikulani. Um, a special shout out to the After Bruce team for their support. You can learn more about them by visiting afterbruce.com. My name is Lingo, and for all of you out there listening to this, on behalf of HIF, Aloha, and Mahalo. Goodbye. Mahalo. Mm -hmm.